everyone, and welcome to the Retired College Athletes Podcast, a podcast designed to inspire and inform current and former athletes using stories and advice from retired college athletes. I'm your host, Sydney Umeri, and today we have Ali Kirshner on. I don't usually dig too far into bios, but Ali's bio is ridiculous, especially for the topic that we are going over, which is coaching. So let's go ahead and get into this. Ali graduated from Duke in 2015, where she was a varsity women's soccer athlete. She was a goalkeeper and was a captain of their team. From 2017 to 2019, she was the assistant sports performance coach at the University of Kansas, and the two years prior, she was a graduate assistant in the same department. I ran into her at the University of Kansas, and during this time, she worked primarily with women's soccer, women's basketball, swimming, and women's golf. From 2019 to 2021, she was at Stanford, and she was the associate sports performance coach. She worked with the women's basketball team and the women's golf team. Now, as a person who played basketball, and maybe for all of you basketball players out there, you realize that she worked at Stanford from 2019 to 2021, meaning that she was a part of their championship run in 2021. Since then, she's taken the role of Director of Creative Strategy for Art of Coaching. What is Art of Coaching, you ask? Well, it's exactly what the title says. It's teaching coaches and leaders how to lead with effective communication and everything they need to get their jobs done the correct way. What we've realized is that in most positions, you get trained to do what you do. But coaches don't necessarily have training, and so that's what they are doing at Art of Coaching. With that said, Allie has a lot of great things to say about coaching. I know we have a lot of coaches that listen to this podcast, which is awesome. But if you're not a coach, this is still a super helpful episode to listen to. We talk about effective ways to communicate with your coach. So that is also super helpful. That's something I wish I knew going into college. And as you may know, communication does not stop in college. You have to do this in the real world at your jobs. And so this is a great, great episode for you to listen to. With that said, this intro has been long enough. Let's go ahead and get into the content for today. And I cannot wait to talk to you guys on the other side. Played soccer in college at Duke University. I um, I was there for four years. I was a goalkeeper, and I was a captain, and you know, really enjoyed my time there. But I didn't actually have a whole lot of playing time as a goalkeeper. Well, and also at a school that's incredibly successful. If you're not really an all-American, you might not see as much playing time. And I, you know, I wasn't seeing necessarily a direct translation between the hard work I was putting in at practice correlate to playing time. And so I was a little bit frustrated initially. And then I really found my place in the weight room where I I did see that direct kind of translation from hard work to results. And so I really fell in love with the training aspect, training side of things. And I had an incredible mentor of a strength coach there. And while I had never, ever, ever considered coaching, in fact, I kind of wanted to be a scientist and kind of be a, a nerd in real life after I left school, I decided to give it a try. I was like, why not? You know, if you're going to, if you're going to do something that you're really passionate about doing it right after college is probably the time. And uh, so I was like, okay, how long can I prolong getting a real person job? So I took the graduate assistant position, at the university of Kansas, which is, you know, obviously where we kind of first crossed paths. Yeah. I had one of the most incredible, if not the most incredible mentor you could have, you know, coach Andrea Hootie is the most well-known, decorated female in our profession. And she empowers everybody that works under her. And I was incredibly fortunate after I spent two years there as a grad assistant, getting my master's in exercise science to actually take the full-time job with women's basketball, women's soccer, swimming, golf, and assist with a number of others. And that was 
I honestly didn't want to leave. The only exception I made to that rule is when Stanford was on the table and I had a chance to interview at Stanford and got the job. And this is my hometown. So I, I, in addition to being an incredible program, a Hall of Fame coach, it was in my hometown where my family still is. So I packed up my bags, came back to Palo Alto, spent two years as the director of performance for women's basketball and women's golf at Stanford. And in my second year, we uh, we were kind of good. <laughs> a little. <laughs> we, we won a national championship in the middle of COVID and bubbles and some crazy stuff that we can go into later. But, you know, I all throughout this, Sydney, I... I really was developing and understanding more of my passion for the human side of coaching and helping people be better communicators, navigate difficult conversations, things that I was never taught as a coach. I was taught what to coach, but not how to do it. So I was like, man, that's such a miss. There's such a gap there. I've had so many not so great coaches. I've had incredible coaches, but one thing that we're just not taught is how to do it. And so there was a company that I now work for, Art of Coaching, that I'd been following for a while. And you know, when the opportunity came came around, I, I couldn't say no because it was a it was a chance to take a leap and and try something new and hard and difficult and different. So I'm still in the same area. I didn't move, but I'm working remotely for the company and I get to coach coaches now and, and leaders of all sort. We use that term ubiquitously. Gotcha. Okay. Your background is amazing. I'm going to leave, of course, a bunch of resources about you in the description for everyone to go check you out. But you have been mentored by some pretty awesome people. I am a huge fan of Andrea Hootie. She's very near and dear to my heart. Just like such an awesome lady and really great at what she does. And then being in a program around Tara Vanderveer, which is, you know, Hall of Famer, like you said. But I love what you're talking about, how like coaches don't get coached often. I hear a lot from girls who are kind of coming out of like amateur athletics into college athletics and they can be really critical of coaches. And I think rightfully so, you know, sometimes like when you're at that level, it's kind of like a volunteer kind of situation. And then you get to college and sometimes you have a great experience and sometimes you don't, but you never hear about coaches being coached. And so at the art of coaching, what are a few things that you're coaching coaches on? That's a great question. And you're so right. I think that we, as coaches, we learn from watching. And we learn from like in every other profession, right? Like teachers go to teaching school, firefighters go to, you know, uh, academies, every other profession really has some sort of extensive training program in which they are thrown into the fire and actually have to do the thing, not just learn about it. And so that's sort of what we try to replicate at Art of Coaching. We actually have a live in-person workshop, which is like the core of our, of our business where it's pretty fun. We use improv, so not like improv comedy, but like the the rules of improv to teach people tools and tactics to have hard conversations, to be more adaptable, to know what to say in the moment, to think on their feet. Because a lot of what we find as coaches is that, well, one, we don't understand that every single person needs to be coached differently. And so we we end up just like thinking that you have to be hard or you need to be the love them up kind of person when in reality, like each person needs something, a slightly different flavor. And so it's trying to identify and give coaches the the tools to know what that person needs and then how to adapt your message to fit that person and get them to do what you need them to do. Definitely. The other side of it, I think is like coaches are usually dealing with so many athletes. Like if you're on a soccer team, it's a lot bigger than a basketball team, a football team. That's a bunch of guys. And while the head coach is not the only coach there, there's a bunch of position coaches. What responsibilities on the athlete as well to communicate? Like can athletes also tap into this resource as well? Because I feel like oftentimes you're young in that situation 
and you might not know how to communicate very well. Yeah, it's huge. To answer your, to to kind of attack the first part of what you said, I think you're right. I think coaches are often overwhelmed by the idea that like I don't have time to you know, interact with each person differently or learn what they need individually. I mean, think about a football team. There's 150 athletes, right? And what I would say to that is one, it's your job. And two, it's it doesn't happen all at once. It's through micro interactions. It's through time spent with the athletes in the hotel while you're traveling before a training session, after a training session, you know, it doesn't, it's using specific questions and getting to know them on a more human level. But then it's also having some self-awareness of like what and, and, and listening and not just like saying, hey, how are you doing? And thinking that that's accomplishing the goal. It's it's not. It's it's like informational interviewing and trying to understand who they are and what drives them. So that's the on the one hand. But yeah, I agree with you. I think as an athlete, there is some responsibility and some onus, but it needs to be a two-way street in an environment of reciprocity is created where the athlete feels comfortable being themselves and asking for what they need and and approaching the coach while at the same time the coach is you know is doing the same for them and honestly if if one side or the other isn't isn't functioning you're going to have a broken system yeah i agree i think my time at virginia that was my first school i feel like we had an open door policy where you can kind of come and talk to your coaches but it didn't feel like an open door policy it was kind of like the door's open but like please only come with good news and i get it there's a lot of grace for coaches because I do understand just how difficult that profession can be and like the amount of pressure. I mean, you have your livelihood in the hands of a bunch of young kids. Like I could only imagine. But how would I guess what advice would you give to a program like that where you want to make the change? Like you see that it's not necessarily the healthiest, but you're kind of it's kind of hard to I think sometimes reinvent yourself in the middle of a class of people who have seen it be away for a certain amount of time. So like if I was a junior, I'd be like, now they're trying to do it. Like the skepticism that comes from athletes where it's like, now we're trying to make this change. What advice would you give to that kind of coaching staff? Yeah, I think that's a, that's a great question. And I can probably speak to that in the sense that I myself had a complete, I wouldn't say it was a, it was a 180, but a very different approach to coaching my second to last year to my last year when I kind of like finally was like, oh my gosh, like I've been coaching the way I was told I was, I had to coach and, and I've even told Hootie this. So this is like nothing, you know, that I wouldn't say to her face, but when I was growing up in the profession, everybody assumed that I was going to be a mini Hootie, which is like, you know, she has a very specific distinct style that works super well with her personality. She is tough. She's demanding. She's loud. She's gregarious. That's just not me. And so, and yet when, you know, she was putting me up for these interviews, I think people assumed that they were going to get somebody that was, you know, raised and, and, and groomed by her and that's what they were going to get. And so that's what they wanted. And so, especially like when I got to Stanford, I felt I need to be that I need to like hit the ground running. I need to be tough. I need to show them who's boss. And that's one, not what the Stanford athletes needed at all. It's different for every team. Right. Mm -hmm. And then two, it's just not me. And so I, I coached that way the first year. And then when I kind of had this realization, I did make that change that you were kind of alluding to. It was a real fear of mine that the athletes would think I was a fraud. They were like, like, wait, this is so different because I suddenly I was way looser. I promoted a real culture of like autonomy and learning and a lot more vulnerability with myself. Like I shared a lot more personally, you know, never crossing a line by any means, but I think it opened the door and they could see that I was actually being myself now. And so while it was different, it was better different because it was real now. And so I never like once it happened, they were like, oh, breath of fresh air. And I think that's what I would say is 
as long as it's authentic, then that switch shouldn't cause any issues. I love how you talked about how you were just like, you became basically yourself. I think you, like you said, oftentimes coaches feel like they need to just be really tough on kids. And as you mentioned before, you got to learn your team. Like Stanford didn't need that. And I know a lot of other teams that come to mind that like probably just don't need that. And yet they're under a coach that is doing that. Do you think that sometimes coaches do that out of fear that they will lose control of the team? You know, that's probably part of it. I think I've seen cultures where, and again, it's systemic, right? So it's like one, the the code, it starts, starts from the top. It starts from the head coach and the culture that they promote. I, I was obviously in a different position as a strength coach because you're kind of in a position where you have to uphold the head coach's standards and what they want to do. So it's slightly different, I would say, but yeah, it's really, it's really tough. I think the pressure comes from also perception and stereotypes of strength coaches. Like for, I'm speaking obviously just to, for strength coaches, I can't talk to sport coaches as much, but I think we are seen as unfortunately still these bald headed muscular dudes and, you know, we're the punishers. And that's something else that I really, really fought hard to break is the idea that the weight room is a place for punishment. We can you know, we're rough them up, you know, pick grip and rip. Like that's just not the environment at all that we wanted to promote. And so I think we were fighting against that a lot, but yeah, I don't, I, that fear comes from a lot of places, I think. Yeah. Okay. I think just from a sports side, I know like coach Brandon was my coach at Kansas. He's still there. And I remember one of my favorite interactions with him, he was talking to the whole team. So it wasn't just me, but it was Halloween the year that I was there, uh, 2016. And he was like, guys, I'm going to need you guys to, you know, stay on top of practice day because I have to get home and I want to take my kids out for Halloween. And I thought that that was just so refreshing because it was like you, I mean, you do things outside of basketball, like you're a person. And it was just like, oh, like, I mean, it's not that we didn't know that, but for me, for him to be vulnerable enough to say that really kind of made him a player's coach in my mind. And I think that that's what a lot of kids need, but they don't know how to articulate that. And so as you talk to coaches about kind of getting to know their team, how do you, how can they do that with a group of individuals who don't necessarily know how to articulate what they need? Like the younger individuals that are just kind of like, you know, they're freshmen, maybe you're sophomores and you're just not comfortable saying what you actually need from a coach. Yeah. I think it's a challenge for all coaches to find that balance and everybody has to do it slightly differently of, of being a human. I mean, since when did coaching, coaching is the ultimate social endeavor. In fact, I think we, that, and that's a lost, it's a lost art that we have. Like suddenly maybe it's part of the culture that we're like this cancel culture where we have to be super careful about what we say and what we do with athletes. And people are worried about crossing that line. I told you off air, like that was initially something that was definitely top of mind for me early going because, you know, I wanted to constantly have this air of professionalism. And I didn't want an athlete to think like, oh, that's my friend. And I was tempted. It was very tempting to like want to hang out with these people because they're cool and they're my age. And like, you know, there was an even a point, and this is funny now, like when I came into Kansas, I had athletes that were older than me. And which is like, you know, it's just an interesting situation that you find yourself in. So like you shut down, you're like, I can't share anything personal. I can't share anything vulnerable. Like they'll see me as less than when in reality, we all know that's not, that's not the case. If done correctly, showing a human side makes you way more relatable. makes you way more trustworthy. Like sharing that power with somebody else actually makes you, it builds the buy-in to a, a way greater extent. So you know, I, I can't say there's like a one size fits all model here, but I would encourage all coaches to share more about themselves 
where they came from, their families, what they feel comfortable sharing, but and organically, not forced. But like, what's what? What do you have to lose from that? You had mentioned how, I believe it was something along the lines of like, I learned what I needed to know as a player when I was a coach. And so knowing what you know now, how would that have changed who you showed up as as a player? Oh my gosh. I like, I seriously, Sydney, I would have, I still to this day believe this. I still think I would be a better athlete today in college than I was when I was 18, 19, 20, 21. So, and by that, I mean, mentally and physically, I think I've just matured an incredible amount. I know, you know, how to train that in a way that works for me. I know how to eat. I think that was like a huge piece, not one that I understood at all when I was in college and didn't come to until much later. I, the mental component is huge and it's, it's such a shame that what's that phrase? It's like, you know, youth and vigor or vigor is wasted on the youth and wisdoms wasted on the old or something like that. Yeah. I like, I wish I knew now about what something, some of the stuff that I'm working on now with my company, like how to have a, a mature conversation, how to lead others, how to ask for what you need, how to time management, everything. And like literally everything that I know now would have made me a better athlete. Um, if I could go back and, and lace them up again, I don't know if I would, but I would be a better player for it. I, I agree. Like, I think I look back at how I handled things as an athlete and I think I did the best I could. Like I look back and I'm like, okay, you tried. But I think if you don't look back and cringe a little bit at like your former self, I'm not sure if you're growing at a rate that makes sense. Yeah. You know, I think the part about having the tough conversations is one that I always am like, wow, I wish I would have known that earlier. And I still need work on it. But what advice would you give to players who need to work on that? I think that that pops up all the time. Like whether you're telling a coach, hey, I'm, I don't want to go to your school. I'm going to a different one. That's one that I hear all the time that kids are just avoiding. Yeah. And you need to do that. That's an important conversation. Or just like a conversation about playing time. How do you bring that up in a way that's not attacking your coach on how their, their coaching style is? And saying like, I mean, just taking accountability. I think that's always the hard part for a player where it's like, I'm not playing a lot. And there are some things I probably need to do better on the same t- at the same hand. Like, let me talk to my coach about what their visions are. How do you how like what advice do you give to athletes needing to have those kind of conversations? Yeah, there's two things I would say. The first one is I know for myself as a player, I got super emotional and I think that stemmed from insecurity and I was scared of what they would say. And, you know, this adult to child, basically interaction, power dynamic, all these things put a lot of emotion into that situation, into that interaction. And so it, it, instead of just like delivering the information or asking for information or just having the information out there, it became an emotional like ordeal. And I think one suggestion I would have, and I'm not saying to remove emotion because obviously that we're not robots, but I think if you can look at it for more of just like a, you know, these are the facts or I need the facts. Right. And like, Let's just have a very straightforward conversation where we try our best to keep our emotions out of it and also have an understanding of where the coach is coming from. I think that's important. And it's not something I considered until I was a coach is like, okay, if you're the head coach, your job is to win. So you're, you have to put the best 
11 five in basketball players on the court. And like, it's not personal. It really is not personal. It's my livelihood. Like that's how I make my, that's how I make money for my family. Right. So I think understanding that as an athlete was an important component. So I guess checking emotion, having an understanding of the other side of the, of the equation, the coach's perspective. And then the last thing I would say is meta communication, which is like, sounds meta, but (laughs) Meta communication is communicating about how you're going to communicate. So it's setting the table basically and being like, look, coming into it, I'm emotional. This is really hard. I'm super uncomfortable with this conversation. I just want you to know that off the bat. And that like by communicating that to the other person, now they're receiving that information differently. They know how to absorb that as opposed to just like hearing it and being like, whoa, 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 they're freaking out. What's going on? If I hear somebody say like, hey, just so you know, I'm like really stressed out. This is a really hard conversation. If you could just like hear me out for a second, that would be super helpful. I'm going to take that information in way different than if somebody just comes in crying or something like that. Yeah. Oh, yeah. That's that's good. I think I hadn't even thought about that because that just kind of disarms everybody to kind of understand. Okay, this is good. This is like if she's if she's doing a lot, if she's doing too much in this conversation, like there's a reason she's kind of giving me the reason. So yeah, that's or really even helpful. if you're like, look, I'm hot. Like, <laughs> I, like, I just need I just need a second. Like, just like, let me go. Okay. I think even that that cues the other person to be like, okay, they're at least aware enough to know that this is like off kilter in some way. And like, they just need to be heard or whatever it is. But it's something I try to do a lot in my my life now is just like, communicate about how I'm going to communicate, even if it's on email, like, Hey, I'm busy. Excuse the brevity, right? Like that tells the other person, I'm not trying to be rude. I'm just like telling you that I'm in, I'm in a rush. And that's, I wanted to respond to you. You're important, but I also don't have time to like make it eloquent. Right. Oh, that's good. I, I mean, everyone can take that. Like you don't even have to be a player or a coach. Like that's great. Yeah. I could talk to you about this forever, but I do want to wrap up a little mm-hmm. bit. I would love to hear any advice that you have for coaches or players on the communication piece that I think often breaks down, how can we kind of work together to share that up? Yeah, I think something I heard really sparked a thought for me recently, which is what if instead of viewing communication as this like thing that is going to go super well and that the person is automatically going to understand what I mean and what I'm saying, what if we viewed communication as a miscommunication? Like we start from a place of miscommunication And then this is a minefield in the middle and we have to somehow bridge a gap to find each other in the middle. So we need to find some common ground in the middle. There's a million things in there in that minefield that's separating us right now that we have to think about when we're communicating in order to make sure that we get to the same place. So like whether you have a perception that's incorrect, whether your tone is wrong, whether the timing is incorrect, like all these things could make communication go wrong. And if we just have the mindset that we are not communicating well at the beginning, we're going to be way more aware of what we're saying, how we're saying it. And it would probably lead to a better interaction than if we just assume that everybody communicates like us. All right, guys, that is all I have for you today. I thought Ali was awesome. I mean, I learned a lot from that episode. I hope you learned a lot too. There is much more where this came from. We had such a great conversation. I had to break it into two podcast episodes. So the second half of this podcast episode will be coming out at a later date. We move from talking about coaching to more so her experience. We talk about how even as a coach, she dealt with an eating disorder. And because she was already very relatable to her athletes, as she mentioned in this podcast, she was able to share her experience and be there for her athletes. I think it's going to be an awesome episode. So keep your eye out for Ali's second episode. 
episode. I really hope that you guys found this episode helpful. I think as athletes, we are critical of our coaches and rightfully so. But at the same time, I think it's good to understand where they're coming from, the communication skills that they need to have, maybe are lacking or what they're building on and how we as athletes can effectively communicate with coaches. With that said, let's go ahead and hop into housekeeping. Thank you so much for listening to today's podcast, for taking time out of your day to listen. That means so much to me. I love how this community is growing and by you listening, you are helping that. If you would like to get involved in the RCA community, we are on social media. We're honestly everywhere, but very, very active on Instagram. So if you like our content over here, I promise you, you will enjoy our Instagram page. Just really good content coming out about retired college athletes, how to navigate the season of life, and so much more. We're also on YouTube. There's a video that comes out every Thursday. So definitely check us out there. And if you love our content so much and are willing to give, you can give on our Patreon that is always linked in the description box below. But lastly, if you enjoyed this episode, if you found value from it, please consider subscribing, sharing it, and leaving a review. That's the best way for this podcast to grow. And that's the point. We want to grow to make sure that it gets to the ears of the people who need it most. With that said, I hope you guys enjoy the rest of your week and I will talk to you next week.